0: Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. We're in the series Associations in the Greco-Roman World, and we've finally begun to turn to some minority cultural groups after having dealt with quite a few immigrant associations. In this case we're looking at Jesus groups, associations devoted to the Judean God who also follow Jesus as having been sent by that Judean God, and looking at how these Jesus groups, these early Christian groups, found a place for themselves within Greco-Roman society while also defining themselves in different ways. In other words, we're looking at both the, the dynamic of dissimulation and cultural maintenance and how these groups are constructing their identity as cultural minorities within the Mediterranean world, and on the other hand, how they also find a place for themselves in fit and acculturate too surrounding society despite the differences they have from surrounding society and simultaneously we're looking at early Jesus groups as examples of associations as examples in this case though of cultural minority associations within the mediterranean world so in this sense they both fit and don't fit within society in antiquity And we're looking at a few cases in order to illustrate some of the dynamics of both dissimulation and assimilation. In this episode, we concentrate on 1 Peter, which is from Asia Minor. And in the next episode, we turn to John's Apocalypse, or Revelation, which is likewise from Asia Minor, but has quite a different perspective precisely on some of these issues about how do Jesus groups fit or not fit? How should followers of Jesus be relating to surrounding society? These are the questions that both First Peter and the book of Revelation ask, but they answer the question quite differently. And so we begin to see the diversity of how different Jesus groups as associations fit or did not fit within ancient Mediterranean society in the Roman period, in the Roman Empire. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Once again, the material I'm discussing here is based on some of my other research, including my book on associations, synagogues, and congregations, my book on dynamics of identity and the world of the early Christians, and finally, that collection of ancient sources, of inscriptions, and some literary sources that I mentioned before, that is now forthcoming in the fall of 2012. So look forward to that uh, source book on associations in the Greco-Roman world, same title as our own podcast here, uh, which is a source book that John Kloppenborg, Richard Askoff, and I have put together. And if you take a look at the primary materials that you find there, you'll begin to get more evidence for the variety of things that are going on among associations in the Greco-Roman world, including Christian groups. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's talk about dissimulation and assimilation now with respect to these Jesus groups. Now, the somewhat odd thing is that usually the methods uh, of assimilation and dissimulation and acculturation and it, those sort of models and methods are used when you're studying immigrant groups. But from what I've said so far, you can see how Jesus groups, even though they may not consist of Judeans who think of themselves as Judeans sharing blood, They're nonetheless closely associated with Judean culture and with the Judean God. The other way that these methods are clearly useful is that we're dealing with a minority cultural group, even if they're not an immigrant group. They're a minority with respect to something that's extremely odd in the ancient world, and that is monotheism. Though that one factor doesn't determine everything about them, it is quite an important factor because every culture in the ancient Mediterranean world is polytheistic to be monotheistic immediately makes you a cultural minority methods that we use for studying immigrants are applicable to cultural minorities is what I'm trying to say and that's how I'm approaching the way I look at uh, these couple of cases that we're going to look at I want to talk about first Peter and show you how in that writing we see signs of both dissimulation and cultural maintenance and assimilation and acculturation and then I want to turn to John's apocalypse where we see first of all the perspective of the author strongly dissimilating strongly setting himself apart strongly sectarian to use another sociological term but his opponents show up there in the writing and they're more along the lines of what we're talking about at least signs of acculturation and assimilation Let's talk about 1 Peter and introduce it a bit and use it as a piece of evidence giving us indications of both assimilation and dissimilation within one document where one Christian author and presumably some of his audience are struggling with this issue of how do Jesus followers relate to Greek and Roman society and giving answers that you can do this but you can't do that or uh, here's a strategy on how to fit in even though you don't fit in in these ways. So this is the sort of thing we're getting into here with 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written in Greek. So here it disclaims explicitly in 1 Peter, right at the beginning, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and this is an example of pseudonymity that we're talking about here. Um, So this is most likely written in the 80s or 90s CE, most scholars would agree, in terms of what we're seeing in the actual text itself. And our earliest att- attestations of people quoting it would place it early like that in the late first century as opposed to uh, much later than that. So the thing I want to draw attention to here, first of all, is how First Peter gives us evidence of uh, a Jesus group and at least this author, but I think even the people he's writing to are sort of on his side that is, uh, first of all, clearly defining its identity in contradistinction to Greeks and Romans in the places where they're living. That there's quite an emphasis on distinctive identity and that the Jesus group are different than the rest of society. There's this emphasis on dissimulation in some respects, is what I'm trying to point out to you. And there are several ways in which it manifests itself and several pieces of evidence that show us why or what sort of factors are involved in the tensions that arise from this dissimulation, the tensions that arise from this cultural identity that this author and this group have that is different from others in the cities where they're living. I want to draw your attention, first of all, to the situation they're in the repeated references to suffering. 1 Peter, if you read through it, frequently refers to suffering and implies that the audience that the author is writing to, the audience that's living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all provinces of Asia, that this audience of Jesus' followers are faced with suffering is clearly indicated repeatedly throughout the letter and it seems to be the main focus of one of the reasons he's writing to them to sort of address the suffering they're facing the question comes up is what is the suffering suffering is a word that could apply to all kinds of things right so we need to ask the question of what are these Jesus followers faced with and there are some indications but let's look at a couple of the passages right in the first chapter of first Peter he refers to them suffering various trials tests, These other two passages are key examples of it. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Take a look at that one. He's writing in the letter. He's written a variety of other things we're going to get into soon, but this is what he says at this point. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? But even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord, always be prepared to make a defense To anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence and keep your conscience clear so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing wrong. Notice the language that comes along with the suffering. Abused and reviled. Look at this next passage now, chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. So the idea is you're identifying with Christ by suffering. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And then it goes on to suffering as a Christian. It's better to suffer as a Christian than it is as a murderer and all these types of things, right? Reproached, reviled, abused. This language is the language that comes up in connection with the suffering. The the abuse is verbal, it's social abuse. It's social ostracization, it's it's being called names, being reviled. Those sort of language that is being used to describe what the suffering is, is all verbal. There's no indication of violence it's not that there's never not necessarily that there isn't any violence but the the passages in first Peter that deal with what the Christians are faced with none of them suggest violence they all suggest social uh, sort of situations where Christians are being spoken of negatively so the question is why are they suffering why are people reviling and speaking negatively of them and it becomes quite clear if you look at a couple other passages now that further explain the suffering and will also tell you in a way this arises from the dissimulation. This arises from the sort of distinctive identity of these Jesus groups, which partly uh, originates from the Judean culture, which part- partly originates because it's an immigrant sort of God that's being honored here, that doesn't belong in Pontus and Bithynia. Uh, the, and it arises from the monotheism. It's going to become very clear. Take a look at these passages here. Chapter 1, verses 13 to 19, which explains why they are being treated the way they are. Here, it's, we're going to come back to this uh, soon. It's sort of in the opening of the letter. He's introduced himself. He's emphasizing their, their identity as being born anew, that they're somehow born again. And that, uh, that they have this distinctive identity. He then gets into a few things here in verses 13 to fo- and following of chapter 1. Therefore, gird up your minds, be sober, set your hope fully upon the grace that is coming to you at, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. He's here talking about God's holiness and you need to be holy. But look at the phrase, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It's talking about the, the fact that they used to do something, and now their new identity requires that they not do it. So it's telling you, first of all, that they're Gentiles, that the audience is not Judean that the audience is Greeks and Romans living, mostly Greeks, living in the cities of Asia Minor that we're familiar with from, from our other studies. Look further now. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, and if you invoke as father him who judges each one impartially according to his deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers. Not with imperishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, etc. Taken away from the futile ways inherited from your fathers. You could almost translate that ancestral ways, if you look at the Greek here. It's the same sort of language that we had in those Greek inscriptions from Delos when the Barutians, or the Tyrians, talk about honoring their ancestral gods and engaging in their ancestral customs. We're here seeing, though, the idea of their ancestral ways were the Gentile ways that they have now switched away from. So what I'm drawing your attention to is it's the fact that these are Greeks who have turned to honoring a foreign god, the Judean god, and have given up honoring the Greek gods that is actually the source of the tension that results in people reviling them and and abusing them. results in the suffering that is is talked about throughout 1 Peter. So look at this other passage here now. Chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. Let the time that is past suffice for doing what the Gentiles like to do. Living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. It's a specific perspective there, isn't it? I mean, we've studied what the Gentiles do. Uh, And it's not quite this crazy but from the perspective of a Judean cultural perspective Gentiles are like this. This is representing a Judean cultural perspective this author. Uh, He follows Jesus but he is representing a Judean perspective. And here it's explicitly stating that it's because they've given up those things that they're being abused. The connection is made explicitly. They are surprised, they, the Gentiles, are surprised that you do not now join them in the same wild profligacy and they abuse you. There's that language of abuse that was in the other passages connected with suffering. So the source of the suffering, the nature of the suffering these followers of Jesus are facing in Asia Minor is verbal abuse. And the source of it is that they've, they're honoring a foreign god, the Judean god, And have given up honoring the gods of their fellows. So there you have it. They're faced with suffering. It's rooted in the fact that they have given up their former ways. Their former ways, we're now finding out, they're Gentiles. They've given up honoring the gods they used to honor. And hanging out with the friends they used to have. And now they're honoring some foreign god. And hanging out primarily with the others who are honoring the Judean god. And this is resulting in social tensions with others in the cities where they're living, uh, that uh, manifests itself in verbal abuse and other forms. What's interesting to this situation is 1 Peter's overall response is twofold, and I'm going to begin with the first aspect of it. His first response is to strengthen their distinctiveness, to strengthen the thing that actually, in part, is leading to the tensions, to strengthen their identity and their sense of being holy and set apart from other people, that even though they're Gentiles, they're now part of a new people, aren't they? He uses Judean cultural language and ethnic language to express the identity of these Gentiles, to strengthen the distinctiveness, to dissimulate even further in some respects, to heighten and, and sort of define who they are as, as a, a group separate from the people they used to hang out with. So it's interesting. That's one of the things he does. The other thing he does is advocates doing things that outsiders will actually agree with. He does both. Emphasizes their identity, cultural maintenance, sort of emphasizing their distinctiveness and uses ethnic language from Judean culture to do so. And at the same time, advocates acculturating in other ways. So let's look at the first step of that, the strengthening of identity and emphasizing of differences from surrounding culture. We've already found it in that last one we just read. You used to do these things and now you don't. Give up your old ancestral ways and do things differently. Stop doing the customs of your fellow Greeks in the cities where you live. Give up your ancestral ways. It's getting them to be more different to talk like that, isn't it? At least rhetorically. He's representing it as though he wants them to be different and emphasizes that difference. Let's look at a key passage that really underlines it. First of all, throughout 1 Peter, he uses the language of exiles and aliens to characterize his audience, doesn't he? Are they literally exiles and aliens? No, they are not. He's using the metaphor or the category of being an immigrant to express their identity interesting this is part of why it works to use acculturation methods to study immigrant groups in order to look at first Peter it's because this this author who's writing to these Christians uses ethnic categories and categorizes his audience as though they are foreigners when they are not as though they are diaspora Judeans when they are not so let's look at that further now and you'll see how that's Part of this cultural maintenance and sort of distinguishing the group from the outsiders in, in building up an identity that's different, right? From their old identity. The whole thing opens with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. That analogy of being an exile comes up again in verse 17, in the time of your exile. Comes up again in chapter 2, verse 11. I beseech you as, I I call on you as aliens and exiles. The Greek words that are being used here are words you use for foreigners settled in another foreign land. In other words, that you might use to refer to the Berutians settled on Delos. They're aliens and exiles. It's also using the language of the Babylonian exile when the Judeans are taken away from Israel. So he's using that sort of vocabulary of being in a foreign land, being an immigrant, to express the identity of people who are not immigrants, who are actually Gentiles from the places where they're settled. That is a dynamic of trying to distinguish them from surrounding peoples, isn't it? Talking as though they're immigrants, even though they're not. Let's look at this key passage here, though, 2, 4 to 10. So beyond the use of alien and, and exile language, which emphasizes them almost as being immigrants even though they're not, you have this whole passage here about their identity where the author is trying to strengthen their identity and distinguish them from their former ways, from their Gentile uh, sort of origins. And look at the sort of ethnic uh, identity he builds for them in order to do so. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 and following. Uh, come to him, and he's talking about Jesus here, to that living stone rejected by men in, the God's, in God's sight, chosen and precious, and like living stones be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, blah, blah, blah. It goes on about that. Look down now to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy Ethnos. God's own people. Holy nation. Holy ethnos. From which we get our word for ethnic. The language that is being used here is using Judean language of themselves and applying it to Gentiles who follow Jesus. It's Judaizing them, let's put it that way, right? It's creating a Judean ethnic identity for these followers of Jesus in Asia Minor as a strategy to emphasize how they're different from surrounding society. To emphasize what's different about them from their former ways and what they're doing now and who they are now. You used to be that, now you're this. Now you're God's people. Now you're a holy priesthood. Now you're a new people, right? So this is the sort of uh, interesting strategy he uses to try and strengthen their identity, and yet he's going to go on to find ways in which they can fit in, nonetheless. An interesting thing is that this author is a bit complicated in the sense that one of the other main things he emphasizes is you guys are facing suffering. People are reviling you and abusing you verbally. This is a problem for your life. You need to find ways to lessen that. And these are the areas in which we see him advocating what we could call, using sociological terms, assimilation or acculturation. Cultural assimilation, uh, as we explained it before. So let's look at the key passage. Chapter 2, verse 11, look what he says here. So it's just after the section we just read. So it's chapters 1 and 2 have all been about identity. You've given up your former ways, your futile ancestral ways you've given up. You had a life of ignorance and passions, now you're doing, you're born again. Then the passage we just read about distinctive identity, you're a holy priesthood, you're a chosen race, you're a holy nation, you're God's own people. Once you were no people, now you are God's people. That whole identity thing, identity, identity, you're different. And it's using categories of Judean culture to express it. Then it comes to this. Beloved, I call on you as aliens and exiles To abstain from the passions of the flesh. So far, so good. It's referring back to giving up your former ways still. That wage war against your soul. But look at this next thing. And this sets up what he's going to talk about for paragraphs and paragraphs. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles, so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, so verbally speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation he was referring to this apocalyptic expectation of a final intervention of God the visitation but the point is that we're emphasizing right here is here's an author a uh, follower of Jesus writing to Christians advocating that they maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that the Gentiles will see something from it it's implying that what he's about to talk about are strategies on how to fit in let's put it that way acculturating strategies, assimilating strategies, that this author feels these are the ways in which we do fit in. These are the things we can do as followers of Jesus that do match what Gentiles would consider good conduct. He's going to go on to list all kinds of things now that are examples of acculturation, examples of the followers of Jesus do the same things as other people in the society where they live. Let me give you some context. Consistently within philosophical literature in this period, remember philosophers all aren't, aren't all about sitting and intellectualizing. They're the ethics guys. Philosophers are the ethics guys in antiquity. They're the people who spend a lot of time ta- thinking about what is good behavior? What is the proper philosophical life? And how would one define what is right and wrong within that? And how would you behave in your daily life? philosophers, Stoics especially, that you're familiar with, are all about this, and cynics. How to live in a good way. Ethics is the obsession of philosophy, less so the intellectualizing that we might associate with philosophy in the modern context. When you turn to the philosophical literature to see how they express good conduct, to see how they express what good ethics are, how to behave in your daily life, One of the main things that recurs over and over is to have a good society, we need to have the good basis of society. The basis of society is the household, the family. There are certain behaviors and certain good behaviors that need to take place in the family in order for society to function properly. The household is the whole basis of the polis, of the city. Without good-functioning households, where the behaviors in the household are funct- functioning right, the whole society will fall apart. That is how many Stoic and Cynic philosophers and even Platonic philosophers talk, if you look at the literature, when they're talking about ethics. Ethics begin in the house. Ethics begin in the household. The whole basis of good conduct in life is good conduct within the household, which households... for together become the polis, the city-state. And that's all of society in the mindset of these Greek authors who are talking like this, right? So what scholars call this material that you'll find over and over again is the household codes. So if you want to look it up later, you can find all kinds of literature, especially students of early Christianity studying the household codes. When the household codes come up in Greek philosophers, In order to have a society that runs properly, we have to have proper ethics within the household, and proper ethics within the household consists of examining the relationships within the household. You have the relationship between a husband and a wife. What is proper good conduct and proper relations between a husband and wife? And they go on talking about that. You have master and slave within the household. They presume slavery and aren't against it, and it's just part of society, and it's the way they talk about it. So the master-slave relationship they often talk about in these Greek philosophers and thirdly the parent child relationship so these three relationships are the focus of ethics that's the context in which you have got to realize that this is actually adopting the household codes of the Greek philosophers and saying that Christians should follow them. this whole next section is exactly that Uh, by the way this begins though not with the household but with the proper conduct within society in relation to societal institutions. These other Greek philosophers do that too. So this is where we have that one we touched on when we were talking about honoring the emperor uh, the other week, right? So we've got this, his setting it up. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds. He's now going to outline what good deeds are. And it turns out it's what the Greek philosophers are teaching. And it turns out it's, what will be common custom within the cities where these people are living. They're acculturating to that aspect of Greek family life. And uh, and in this case also in how to relate to the civic and imperial institutions. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right... You should put to silence the ignorance of of foolish men. Live as free men, yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor all men. We already know how the language of honor is so important to culture in these cities, right? And here's being advocated, not rejected. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to, to the kind and gentle but also to the overbearing. Likewise, you wives, chapter 3. I'm skipping all the stuff in between because this is sort of gives you the structure. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husbands. I'm not saying this, First Peter is. So that some, though they, may, though they do not obey the word, may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. So even if they're not uh, following Jesus, when they see irreverent and chaste behavior, and make sure you don't do your hair fancy and all that. It ends with this one in this uh, particular household code. There's other household codes in the New Testament, other Christian authors that acculturate to this, that have the, uh, the third one as well, the parents and children. This one doesn't. So here the author is advocating behaviors that people in society around would say, that's normal, that's the way we do things here, that's the way our culture works, that's what Greek society should be, He's advocating adopting those things. One thing to notice, though, is he does put a twist on every one of them. Christ comes into it. You wouldn't have that in the Greek philosopher talking about master-slave relations or husband-wife-slave relations, right? Okay. He has sort of different rationales that are punctuate the thing. But in essence, if you read these other household codes in the Greek <coughs> philosophers, the, the essence of the behavior that is advocated is precisely the same. The ethics are precisely the same, even though the rationale here is because Christ suffered, you should be uh, able to suffer as a slave to your master and all that type of thing. And, and the rationale with the wives submitting to their husbands is that Sarah obeyed Abraham. Obviously, you won't find that in a Greek Stoic philosopher's writings about husbands submitting to their wives. They would have a different example they might use from some other cultural context. But here, it's from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so it puts a little spin on it but the essence of the behaviors are the same; the same ethics are being advocated by this author, that belongs to a Jesus group, that would be advocated by other uh, intellectual uh, sort of philosophers in contexts where the, these Christians are living. So, do you see how that could be seen as acculturation? So, a guy, if you want to read further about this, who's done a whole book on First Peter on the household codes, and that deals with this to some degree, is David Bulch. So he, he has a whole book on this very topic of acculturation within First Peter uh, that has influenced what I'm doing here. We were sketching out the Jesus groups and seeing, and sort of comparing them to Judean groups in a way, and seeing the way that they're although they're cultural minorities and although their intention with society to some degree centered around the fact that they deny the gods of others just like the Judeans do, Despite those tensions and despite the problems those tensions can cause, there were also signs among some early Christians, among some even leaders of early Christian groups, indications of attempts to try and fit in in other respects. And so we saw that with First Peter. The, the question of how did Christians fit within society and to what degree did Christians participate in culture around them, that, the answer to that question is different depending on which Christian you're interviewing. So it depends which Christian author you're looking at. And even within a particular writing, if you read between the lines, you may be seeing other Christian viewpoints beyond the author's viewpoint. So that's what we turn to now, John's Apocalypse, as another author who has quite a different take on how these groups of Jesus followers should relate to surrounding society. John's Apocalypse is highly sectarian in a sociological sense. But and this is now a recognition among a good number of scholars, he is not the majority perspective. In other words, it's been common in the past for people studying John's Apocalypse to take it as representative of all early Christian perspectives on the Roman Empire. And therefore, to say all early Christian groups are sectarian. All early Christian groups draw a strong boundary around their group and are intentioned primarily with society and very little interaction with society. So that was the common scholarly approach to John's Apocalypse, to take it as standard, to take it as, this is what early Christians thought about their Roman Empire. That is a problem, and we've even seen that already, just by looking. I could have picked a few other writings for you to look at, but even looking at 1 Peter gives you a strong indication of the problems with assuming that John's Apocalypse is representative. Instead, each of these authors, and it's hard to know who's the majority and who's the minority, or however you want to put it, But each of these authors represents sort of different points on a spectrum of of opinion among followers of Jesus about how you should live within society, to what degree you can interact with culture around you, what aspects of culture can you interact with. So in John's Apocalypse, the entire writing seems to be saturated with a view that you cannot live in the cities of Asia Minor and interact with imperialism in the cities of Asia Minor it's not quite clear what you're supposed to do as a Jesus follower. Remember, he's writing, John's Apocalypse written from Patmos, a little island off the coast of Asia Minor, to seven cities on the western coast of Asia Minor, places like Ephesus and, and Smyrna and, uh, and Sardis and uh, Pergamon, and those ones that you're familiar with. And so he's writing to those Christians, trying to convince them of something and trying to convince them to view things like him. And what he's trying to convince them of is how demonic, how how devilish the whole imperial system is and remember that even though Rome's far away to condemn Rome and to condemn Roman imperialism is not just to condemn the city of Rome it's to condemn a lot of cultural practices that are happening in the cities where these followers of Jesus are living that he's writing to because it's 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 integrated within cultural life there that whole uh, idea of honoring the emperors and even giving sacrifices to the emperors, but also all kinds of aspects of interaction with Roman authorities. Even though you're far from Rome, Roman imperialism is right where you are in these cities. So for an author like this, this Judean author who believes Jesus is the Messiah, to write to other followers of Jesus saying that the empire itself is Babylon the whore who drinks the blood of the saints the roman empire is the exact opposite of anything that can get along with christians if it's drinking the blood of the saints right which is the imagery you get in some of the visions of this apocalyptic writing on top of that the portrayal of the idea of the two beasts in chapter 13 who are in league with satan it becomes very clear when you read john's apocalypse that he is identifying the beast with many horns with the roman emperor and with Nero specifically. And so he's demonizing the emperor, let alone saying, honor the emperor. That's, that's the furthest thing from his mind, isn't it? He's demonizing the emperor. You couldn't imagine this author, of John's Apocalypse, joining First Peter and saying, yeah, I agree with you, we should honor the emperor. So we're seeing this, uh, a bit of an op- opposite pull on that particular issue. So it's quite clear that he's advocating a sectarian perspective. It's not clear precisely how he expects these followers of Jesus to live according to this. But somehow they're supposed to distance themselves as far as they can. Get as far away from the empire as, you can, as, as though you're running away from Satan. How are you supposed to do that? He never clearly outlines it. The good thing about John's apocalypse is that even within it, it indicates that some of the followers of Jesus he's writing to don't agree with him. And it's precisely on this issue of to what degree can we participate in certain cultural practices or social practices of society around us. So in the opening letters, before he gets into the details of the visions that I was just quickly sketching that demonize the empire, before he gets to that, he writes to each of these seven churches and complains about what's going on at a couple of them. The main ones he complains about are Pergamon... And Thyatira, And at least the ones I want to draw your attention to again. So you can see, even within John's Apocalypse, we have evidence of the fact that other Christians have a different perspective than he does. Maybe these other Christians are a little more in line with what 1 Peter thinks. We don't know enough about them to build up a profile and then compare it to the profile of 1 Peter. Besides that we know that the condemnation of them by John is based on the fact that they're eating idle food, and that they're committing fornication, as he calls it. So does anyone know how the Hebrew Bible uses the idea of fornication for a variety of purposes? In other words, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, you have the idea of fornication very important in, in the idea of how the Israelites, how God's people, relate to God. Does anyone know how the Hebrew Bible uses that analogy of fornication? So the way that worshiping other gods is characterized throughout the Hebrew Bible is whoring around on God. That's quite the person to be cheating on. So the whole of God's people is cheating on God is the analogy that's used throughout the Hebrew Bible. When they worship the gods of other people or when they participate in the culture of other people, Canaanites, Phoenicians, the surrounding peoples that are in the time of the Hebrew Bible. This is what you need to know when you're reading John's Apocalypse when he accuses them of eating idol food. It's, that's quite clear, idol meat, food sacrificed to idols. And really, he's just saying the same thing again and fornication, idolatry. The main accusation he has against these other Jesus followers, John's Apocalypse does, is that you guys are idolaters. You are worshiping the Greek and Roman gods. Now, Does that mean that the followers of Jesus in these cities are literally worshipping the Greek and Roman gods? No, it does not. It means that the author of this document equates what they're doing with worshipping the Greek and Roman gods. And you have a lot of uh, sort of uh, predecessors for that in the Hebrew Bible, too. In the precisely the passages that are dealing with the pouring around on God type thing, where God's people are sleeping with other gods instead of with with Yahweh, the Israelite god. it's also in those same passages that there are complaints about for the authors who are condemning it as whoring around there's complaints about the Israelites being too close to the peoples around them not only sometimes sexually actually intermarriage but also participating in the culture of the people around you is sometimes characterized as idolatry even though there may not be explicit worshipping of gods involved so you're starting to see this overall background to this What we can say is that John's apocalypse, when he's condemning some of these Christians, especially at Pergamon and Thyatira, he's condemning them for participating in cultural practices that we don't know precise details of, except for eating food sacrificed to idols. They're also participating in some other cultural practices that he's characterizing as fornication and idolatry. There's a whole sort of range of possibilities of what may be going on. I would suggest to you it's unlikely but possible that uh, they may be engaging in the, in other words, participating somewhere in actual uh, honours for gods, including emperors, right? More likely, in my opinion, is that they're participating in maybe honouring the emperor without thinking of them, of them as a god, for example, but that's a speculation. Or. Um, hanging out with friends who aren't followers of Jesus a whole lot more, or just as much as they hang out with the followers of Jesus. Or continuing to go to the guild that you belong to. You're a purple dyer living in Pergamon, and you're still a member in the guild of purple dyers, and you're a member in the group of Jesus followers. But John is clearly seeing whatever that participation is as idolatry. Too much involvement in surrounding culture. Too much involvement in society. And he's condemning that. So the letter of Pergamon is in chapter 2, verses 12 and following, where he characterizes them as people who follow the teaching of Balaam. And then at Thyatira, which is also in chapter 2, he condemns people for following Jezebel. These are also uh, characters from the Hebrew Bible that he's sort of putting on to certain particular people that, in order to demonize them. Jezebel is the famous person who misleads the king of northern kingdom to uh, worship the gods of other peoples exactly this fornication metaphor that we're talking about and literally fornicates with the king in order to get him to fornicate with the gods of other people that's the sort of way that this is talked about in the hebrew bible he's calling some follower of jesus there a woman in thyatira he's calling jezebel in order to ring of that whole story in the hebrew bible of someone who leads you to participate in the culture of other peoples. So is that clear now how that all works? So even within one writing, you can sometimes find the signs of that spectrum of opinion that we're talking about that relates to how the Jesus groups, how strong a line between them and surrounding society is drawn, how permeable is that line around the group in relation to broader society, what things can you participate in, what things can't you, different opinions. And that held also for the Judean groups, too. I mean, there was no one answer as to what degree of assimilation every Judean group had. There would be differences from one group to the next.